that you are to be concerned with. Hoo-ah! You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to keep it. You're a freak with a dark, shameful secret. But you're not the only one. Get your hidden financial fears with a blast of sun. Now your healing has begun. It's bad with money with Gabby Dunn. Hello there. It's me again, Gabby Dunn. I'm back in your earbuds or tinny smartphone speakers or whatever you're using to listen to my soothing yet sinister voice. You guys, this week on Bad With Money, we're hitting a big one. Climate change. The last few weeks, we've really swung for the fences with our topics. Structural racism, the healthcare system, universal basic income. So this week we thought, you know what? Those are really huge problems to try to solve with our humble little podcast which is what makes it so impressive that I'm happy to report we totally solved them. We solved them. Everything is solved, you guys. Shut it down. Podcast over. We're done. It's solved. Oh, it's not solved? Nothing's solved? Everything's bad? Okay, great. Well, so all those things are still big problems. But that's not stopping us from taking a swing at climate change this week. Now, you're perhaps asking yourself, why is Gabby talking about climate change? Climate change doesn't have anything to do with money. Well, you, my friend, would be wrong. Pretty much all of our enormous social issues have to do with money. That is, in case you haven't picked up on it, kind of the point of this season. Climate change is a significant financial issue, and in ways that, frankly, I never expected. In this episode, we're going to look at how climate change has been pulling out our country's purse strings for years already, and how it's only going to cost us more if we don't do anything about it. Now, as you probably know, because I love discussing my trashy beginnings, I'm from South Florida. And my parents still live there, which makes this even more of a thing for me. Because, guys, Florida is sinking. And I don't just mean that Great Against Me song. By 2060, the waters that surround most sides of the peninsula where I am from are expected to rise by about two feet. And this is something that's already in motion. We can't really stop it. It's called inevitable sea level rise for a reason. And if you don't care about two full feet of inevitable sea level rise in Florida... Climate change will also make all of the inequality we've been talking about this season even worse. In a study released last year, scientists found that states in the South, like Florida and Texas, will be hit hardest, while northern states will actually benefit just a little economically. And the poorest areas of the country are projected to lose 20% of their income by the end of the century if we don't change course. As stated in the press release, if we continue on the current path, our analysis indicates it may result in the largest transfer of wealth from the poor to the rich in the country's history. That's like the opposite of Robin Hood. And while it's terrifying to think about what might happen in the future, what I want to focus on in this episode is the fact that we are already feeling the financial impact of climate change in subtle and not so subtle ways. You'll hear more about that after the break. Did you spend that ad break wondering about all the ways you're contributing to sea level rise? I hope so. Get ready to feel worse. Jessica Mulit is a social media reporter and producer for Fusion, and she wrote a series for The Root called The Color of Climate, which detailed something called climate gentrification. It's not so different from your average kind of gentrification, hip, wealthier young people moving in and displacing communities that have lived in an area for decades. But this time, it's happening because the climate is changing. Jessica has seen firsthand what's happening in neighborhoods in Miami. So in South Florida, there's a really well-documented history of both, you know, racism, segregation, and redlining, specifically when it comes to housing. So, you know, early in the, like, 20th century, mid-20th century, 
people of color and specifically black Americans weren't allowed to live near the beach. So as a result, they were forced to create their own communities more inland. And as a result, we just happen to find out now that a lot of these uh, neighborhoods that are predominantly black. So, for instance, the Little Haiti neighborhood, Alapata, Overtown, we now know that they sit eight, nine, ten feet above sea level. And in a city that's, quote unquote, sinking, that's really valuable. So in the course of my research, when I spoke with different people who live in a lot of these historically black neighborhoods, they said as if, you know, they're, they're feeling the pressure to, you know, move or be moved because of the fact that, you know, sometimes they're being now like priced out of their homes, people who have businesses there. There was one gentleman who I spoke with who owns like a little knickknack shop in Little Haiti. And he said that when I spoke with him, and this was August of 2017, he's actually like in December, he had to close the doors of his gift shop because the rent has like nearly doubled. So I think the the intersection of both climate and gentrification is very real. And even if people might not necessarily think that it is, you know, something that's happening or it's just the natural tide of gentrification manifesting itself, I think that it's so important for us to recognize and, you know, discuss like which communities are being affected and why. Well, you have a unique perspective as someone who's from there. Oh, yeah, for sure. And something that I find really interesting is the fact that like, you know, growing up here, I've, I have some family that like lives in Little Haiti, like my, my great aunt and uncle. And, you know, when I think of the area, I think of, you know, like chickens crossing the street. Like I, I don't necessarily think of how it is now. So, you know, if you were to walk around, you'd see, you know, a lot of like artisanal hipster coffee shops and, and nothing is wrong with those things inherently. Like people obviously want development. They want the whole foods. They want, you know, access to good, affordable you know, food, but what they don't want is the displacement part of it. So people are starting to, you know, kind of mobilize and people are recognizing the fact that climate gentrification is a real thing. And as a result, you know, there are a lot of community organizers who are now coming together and they're trying to hold these, you know, sessions, uh, learning sessions for, you know, people in the neighborhood. Sometimes it's in various languages so that people can understand concepts like, you know, rising sea level climate change, gentrification, you know, their rights and why all of this really matters for them. Because unfortunately, climate is, you know, threat multiplier. So a lot of times people aren't worried about, you know, sea level. They're more worried about where their next meal is going to come from. They're going to worry about how they're going to keep the lights on. There are so many other things that are on their plate that they view to be more pressing. But Nonetheless, I still think that on the ground, there's, there are so many efforts of people trying to come together so that people do recognize the fact that, you know, the reason why you are worrying about these things and the reason why, you know, this community as opposed to another is facing these problems is due to, you know, the very real reality of climate gentrification. Yeah, absolutely. And so climate gentrification, like, is there a baseline sort of explanation of it? One definition that I used um, for climate gentrification, it pretty much expands upon conventional gentrification by focusing on environmental concerns like rising sea levels as central factors and driving out and oftentimes pricing out people living in areas that were previously thought to be less valuable. I always think like, well, what what happened to the people that were there before, you know? Exactly. And I think that's the sad part because you know, nothing is wrong with people wanting to move in and be a part of whatever, you know, culture has already existed there in the first place. You know, I think it's more of a matter of when that 
culture is trying to be erased in the first place, like that is what the issue is. So it's not development. People aren't necessarily anti-development. They're anti-displacement. And I think that the sad part of this is that so many people who live in South Florida who are feeling the impact of climate gentrification, like they're thinking to themselves, like, you know, where am I supposed to go? So for instance, there are other places in Florida, like Homestead has been one area where people that have been displaced have moved to, but people don't necessarily even have an answer of where would I go if, you know, this little efficiency that I've decided to rent for X amount of money for the last couple of years, if the person who owns the property decides to increase the rent, then you'll be priced out. And that's what's happened with some of these, you know, stores and, you know, some of pe- some people's homes and I think one way in which people can kind of combat that is by, you know, owning their property, by owning their house. But if someone doesn't even have the capital in the first place to even own a home, then that kind of takes them out of the running of not being, of having that bargaining chip to even say that, you know, this is my neighborhood, I'm going to stay, and I'm definitely not going to leave. Yeah, well, even with owning, like we were talking a bit about people leaving for hurricanes and stuff, like even with owning property, there's always this thing, at least being from South Florida too, where like e- your house is just going to get washed away. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, right. I think it's one of those things where it's like people would have to, <laughs> I guess they would have to like stop and think for themselves, like how long do they see Miami, you know, existing in the foreseeable future? Like, is it worth it to you know, buy a home. It's so messed up. It's such a like cultural center, you know? And then like people are just like, no, I don't think climate change is real. Okay. See you later, Miami. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. No, very true. And I think that something in my reporting that just made me like reflect on it, it just sucks because I think that this is such an example of both like the past and the present, like coming together where, you know, people of color weren't allowed to live near the beach. So as a result, they moved inland because they had to. And now that they are inland, something that wasn't necessarily seen as valuable is now what, you know, quote unquote, mainstream society needs. So now, once again, those same people who were displaced, you know, generations ago, or their ancestors rather were displaced, they will also have to be displaced. So it's just like this weird, this weird way in which like the past and the present are just like, kind of coming together because, you know, we can't have this conversation about climate change and climate gentrification without, you know, getting to the ugly side of it, which comes into, you know, the intersection of race, class, all of these things, you know, impacted each other. And that's why these groups are the ones that are being, you know, impacted now in the first place. So climate change is having a huge effect on people of color and immigrants in South Florida. And after the break, we're going to learn more about why. Welcome back to the show. We're about to dig into why climate change has a compounding effect on low-income communities in Florida. And to do that, I've got Caroline Lewis. Caroline is the founder of the Clio Institute and was honored by the Obama White House for her efforts in her community. Can you imagine that? The White House honoring people for climate change work? We were so young once. Anyway, the Clio Institute is a Miami-based nonprofit dedicated to educating and advocating for communities that will be hit hardest by the effects of climate change. 
beyond sea level rise and tidal flooding, which affects everybody, not just the most coastal of us down here in South Florida, but all of us, we find that the heat vulnerability is a major problem. We find that the low-income folks that do not have working air conditioning are really feeling the heat in the summer. And when I explain climate change and greenhouse gases and heat trapping and all of that, um, the folks in the town halls in Liberty City and Little Haiti are giving me their anecdotal stories about, yes, I know what you're saying, Mrs. Lewis, because when I open my window at night to let in some fresh air, there is no fresh air. I just want to jump in here real quick. It might seem weird to focus so much on air conditioners, but this is crucial in a hot and warming state like Florida. People barely lived in the state before air conditioners were invented. We'll get deeper into the impact this could have a little later in the show. So we find that people are feeling the effect of climate change now through concerns about heat vulnerability and health vulnerability. And the Zika virus is one that reared its head um, a year or two ago, and we don't know what's coming next. But these people do not have the means, if pregnant, to leave the state of Florida to avoid Zika. They have to stay and be at higher risk. We find that health concerns like allergies are amplified. Uh, allergy seasons used to have a beginning and an end. They seem to go on continuously year-round. And people have tremendous difficulty not missing work because of this. So the economic impact of climate change is being felt right now by several members of our community, but I would say most specifically those with low resources and absence of safety nets economically to be able to ride out um, sick days or a storm or lack of electricity or something. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's also the thing of like, you know, the hurricanes and storms and stuff destroying houses and land and, and the people, at least where I'm from, sort of not being able to move or, you know, there was all this stuff about like, well, why didn't they leave, you know, during the evacuation? And it's like, well, not everyone can. That is exactly the point. And the audacity of the rest of us to be saying, get three days of food and water supplies ready right. and board up your houses and evacuate, assuming that everybody has the means to do that. So we found even with Irma, when the evacuation was notice was given that we all should evacuate, we started very quickly with these communities with whom we work, asking who needs help and what do you need help doing? And our biggest requests were, could you get me to a shelter or could you get me plywood to board up my house? Um, the fact that climate change is making the size and intensity of these storms so much greater. This did not even hit us. This was a category one storm and we got sideswiped. We didn't even get a direct hit and we suffered greatly. And some of these folks missed eight days of work because of Hurricane Irma. And you know, and I know, if you are living paycheck to paycheck, eight days without pay, something has to give. You could see it when I was growing up, the people who had generators versus the houses that didn't. Friends of mine who had generators that we would go over to their houses during the hurricane versus like our house that didn't. That's right. So what are the, are there tools? I know you mentioned like going around and making sure that 
houses have in low income communities have air conditioning units. Is there other tools or other like movements to get certain specific things done? So, yeah, well, by the way, Gabby, the size of the economically vulnerable population in Miami-Dade County, where the Clio Institute is based and where I live, is astounding. Uh, the Alice report that comes out from the United Way, last year's report, 2017, identified 58% of Miami-Dade County as being um, federal-level poverty or the working poor, meaning they're asset-limited and income-constrained, but they're employed. And that's the acronym ALICE, A-L-I-C-E, asset-limited, income-constrained, employed. But this group of people are living on low-lying areas that flood and the undercarriage of their cars are getting compromised. We have um, those living on high ground experiencing, from their point of view, a very predatory amount of gentrification, developers knocking on their doors, the public record revealing who is falling behind on taxes, who has a lien on their house, and those are getting particularly preyed upon. So plenty of vulnerability to go around. So the idea of a public-private partnership to make the ward unit program work is a dream of mine, but that's still a while off. I haven't gotten enough interest to make that happen. What has been happening is a bit of a, a the nanogrid solar units, these things called solar coolers. Uh, we just got one as a demo here at, at Clio. And what it is literally is a solar powered um, cooler that has some good capacities, like a little mini refrigerator, if you will, and a battery storage. So even though it may be cloudy or you're not getting the sun 24 hours. The battery storage allows this thing to keep things cool for a long, long time. So these solar coolers or nanogrid self-contained units are important for medicines, for supplies that people need. And we are hoping that we could scale that before, during or after a hurricane on loan basis for those that need it. The other thing that's promising, I hope, is that the cities and the counties are hearing about the vulnerability of these populations and looking at ways to create a safety net, an economic safety net, so that people who are just having a bad month or so aren't so pressured to sell out to developers. So you were talking about the Clio Institute trying to bring awareness to people who just don't know about this or who are just really like trying not to care. So I imagine, I mean, is that is that the biggest challenge you face or is there? Well, yeah, the thing is, the, I guess the big umbrella challenge is convincing people of the urgency of the climate science so that we're driving climate action. So we really want the grassroots people who say, what can I do about climate change? Well, you can vote. You have the power to speak to elected officials or before you vote for them, ask them what are they doing about climate. I was speaking at a Chamber of Commerce um, forum a while ago, and we were discussing something similar to this. And some of them were looking very unconcerned about the working class. And I'm like going, listen, let's suppose your business survives a hurricane or some threat that happens to South Florida. 
where is your workforce going to come from if they aren't resilient and can't bounce back and can't come to work? I'm trying to paint the picture that all the pieces need to be resilient for this work and for us to stay here as safely as possible for as long as possible. Yeah, because it's not just, it's so misunderstood to be, oh, it just might get a little warmer. Like, that's not what we're talking about. Exactly. But I don't Hmm. know. I think, okay, so you asked the question earlier, why are people not getting it or not wanting to get it? Why aren't they scared enough? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it's like that whole cigarette smoking research where the cigarette making companies created doubt about the link between cigarette smoking and lung cancer. They didn't try to disprove it, but they kept saying the science is not clear. There's no definite link. There are other things that contribute to lung cancer. And so similarly, with these greenhouse gases and climate change and the warming world and the food and water and health and sea level rise vulnerability, they're doing the same thing. They're saying to the public, they're creating doubt that we're in a cycle. The climate has always been changing. Right. This is not abnormal and that these are just fear mongering folks who are trying to get us scared and nervous so they can make money. I've been accused of being in this business of educating and engaging people for the money. So I'd like to show them my wardrobe and my shoes, (laughs) my jewelry, so they can see that they're probably not right. But um, if you look at the cycles of the greenhouse gases going up and down, up and down, but never above 300 parts per million for the past 5 million years, and we're at 410, and we're heading for 500. These might mean nothing to you, but it's just how much carbon dioxide, which is a greenhouse gas, how much of that is in the atmosphere right now, and how high can we go? We have no literature, no data that takes us back to a time on the planet Earth where the parts per million were as high as they are today. Yeah, it seems like it's just going to end up like we can't trust the current government and maybe future governments. So it seems like it's just going to come down to like private nonprofits, organizations, and then individuals. Well, I don't know, but I tell you, I would like the right people running for office. I would like the wealthy And there are quite a few billionaires who so get the need for climate action that they're investing very, very heavily. I just met with a group here in Florida who created a a foundation to help combat climate change and and improve education through data-driven facts. And it was founded by a climate denier, a guy who did not believe that climate change was real or was urgent, but loves data and appreciates data. So he steeped himself in the science of climate and came to the conclusion, oh my goodness, this is the only thing we could focus on right now. And we just met with him as a potential funder for Clio. And it was kind of heartening to see somebody take it upon themselves to understand the reality of it and to do something about it because they had the means to do so. Do you think that people that would be the most disenfranchised by climate change have the least time or have it low on their priority list because of the way they're disenfranchised? So when Clio Institute started working in under-resourced communities very um, deliberately, 
we got a lot of um, pushback from some city and county folks who were saying that these people have so much to worry about. Don't expect them to care about climate. So we actually started off in each community with listening sessions, asking people what they know about climate change, what they want to know, what they're concerned about. And from that narrative, we found that they wanted to be educated. They wanted to understand what's happening and why allergy seasons weren't ending and why it was so warm at night. And there was a, 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 a pride in them understanding the basic science of what was happening and an ability to grasp it. And what we found from them is with that little bit of knowledge, and I'm talking maybe a half an hour conversation, they were inspired to the point where they go, well, why are so few of us here in this room? Why aren't more people here? So I think they care, and they care passionately. When I ask them, what do you want to talk about at the town hall that will help you form? Because we made them lead it. We just coached them from the side. They said, we want to talk about emergency preparedness, and we do not want to be the next Katrina. We want to talk about our tidal flooding, in the low-income areas where they're not pumping the water out and some of the roads are a little bit beveled, so the water is staying there longer than the tide is. And we want to talk about gentrification in the high ground. And we most importantly want to talk about education. And we don't want you coming in and telling us what resilience looks like. We want to be at the table when you're planning for climate resilience. We want to tell you what we're worried about and what we need from you. As they tell us, if you're not at the table, you might be on the menu. And of course, as we've alluded to in these conversations already, this is much bigger than just Florida. Though, care about Florida, you guys. I'm from there. Anyway, a warming world is exactly that, the whole world. In the U.S. alone, weather and climate disasters cost a record-breaking $306 billion last year. That's wildfires in California, hurricanes in Texas and Florida, and climate change is affecting workers, and just generally how we interact with each other. We'll get more into that after the break. We're back with Tama Carlton, a PhD candidate in agricultural and resource economics at UC Berkeley and a member of an interdisciplinary group called the Climate Impact Lab. She's been crunching the data on how climate change has affected us throughout history and how it's affecting us right now. Climate tends to act like a tax on our economic output. And, you know, I think we all have an intuition for sort of a maize or corn plant sitting in a field and drying up under a hot sun or not having any water. But there are many other ways that similarly the climate will sort of shrink our economic output just like it shrinks crop yields. So, you know, we see crop yields suffering uh, under adverse climate conditions, but we also see that people will just not show up to work as much. So in the U.S., for example, if we get to days that are over about 85 degrees, you'll see that workers will start to work less, particularly in industries uh, like construction or in forestry, but even in places like manufacturing. So that's one example. We also see that you know, even when workers do show up at work, they're often less productive under heat. I think we can all kind of relate to that and think about how, how we feel when it's hot out. And so 
Um, these are a couple of examples, but we we can add up all these different ways that the climate sort of taxes our total economic output. And we often see when we add them up across different sectors of the economy, we can get some really big, uh, big impacts on our total economic output. People are just calling in to work, calling out. You know, we don't it's hard for us to know exactly what the mechanism there looks like. So what we see is that there's just reported less minutes of, of, of work. So in these industries that are really exposed, we can see sometimes as much as an hour. It could be that Workers are taking a little bit longer of a break. They're just signing out a little bit earlier, um, particularly at the heat of the day and the afternoon. Um, we don't exactly know what that mechanism is, but we definitely see that they're they're working less hours, which when you think about all the billions of workers around the world and you think about adding up fewer hours, that can add up to a really big number. Wow, that's crazy. So, I mean, this isn't something new. Like people have been thinking about this for centuries. So what are the ways that that it's different now than it was when when we first started thinking of climate change as an economic issue. Yeah, so you can actually go all the way back. Aristotle uh, had this climate classification system, and he was basically saying that, you know, the tropics are too hot. We're just not going to be able to produce anything there. Civilization can't survive in the tropics. Obviously, that's not right. Um, but these sort of like philosophizing about the role of the climate was where we really started and then only really in the last couple of decades have we had the data and the statistical tools to start asking rigorously, what is the effect of this heat or this drying on, on our economy? So we've really moved from sort of hypothesizing some things that were sort of right, some things that were sort of wrong. And now we're really in a position where we're able to test with big data and with statistical models, um, which of these theories are right and wrong and, and uncover um, some things, that you're, like you're saying, that are old and well-known and some things that are new uh, and exciting and, and, and troubling in many cases. This is such an interesting way to think about it because I remember also like in, you know, in middle school and high school, they would keep the the high school super cold because my school is in Florida. And the worry was that if it was warm inside, we would all fall asleep. <laughs> yeah, I know. And very accurate. There, there is sort of a lot of evidence somewhere. There's a sort of a sweet spot around, you know, 22 degrees Celsius. And really, when we, we all seem to be very happy and, and we're all a lot less productive. We do worse on our test scores in, in high schools. We see math and reading scores fall both when it's too hot, but also when it's too cold. So there is sort of, um, yeah, sort of this sweet spot in the middle where we're all much happier being. So in economics, there's this idea of assessing how much it would cost to do something, which is like cost-benefit analysis. So how are people who are designing policies thinking about the cost of climate change or the cost it takes to, to mitigate it? Like what should they be taking into account? Yeah, so what you really want to think about here is a very uh, a classic problem in economics called the tragedy of the commons. And, you know, we encounter this tragedy of the commons all the time in our daily life. If you have roommates and, you know, the kitchen gets messy, it's because we're all contributing to this common good. And it's really easy for me to leave a dirty dish and hope that someone else will clean up after me. And I don't really pay the full burden of leaving that dirty dish. Same thing with the atmosphere. We're all driving our cars, emitting a little bit more carbon, which causes the temperature to rise a little bit more. But then the costs of that are spread around the entire world and all these people that we don't really interact with. So as economists, we try to think about what policies, what tools would allow us to adjust people's behavior so that we don't put that burden on everyone else. And so the really big policy lever here, which is a, a lot of my work is focused on, is a term called the social cost of carbon. And that is a number that is supposed to represent the total cost around the entire world of emitting one more ton of carbon. Okay. What we love to be able to do is then say to you, Gabby, you're driving your car to work. Um, you should be paying a little bit more for that drive to work 
by uh, adjusting for the, the amount that you pay for your gasoline by this social cost of carbon based on how much carbon you're emitting. So we really want to be able to add up all of these different ways that uh, that society is taxed by the climate so that we can adjust our decisions that we make every day uh, accordingly. But that, you know, that's in a dream world where we would have something like a carbon tax and, and understanding what the appropriate number for that carbon tax uh, would be is really the heart of a lot of the economics of climate change. So we would, individuals would pay that? And, you know, there are a lot of different policy proposals for how we could think about uh, adjusting our uh, our society to account for these costs. But, you know, sort of the most dream world, the economist's dream world for how we would address the problem is, yes, there'd be a tax on carbon, but it would really depend on how much carbon your car uses versus my car, for example, but then uh, all the way back down to industries who are using you know, huge amount of carbon relative to, to you as an individual. So how does how does climate affect our society today in terms of like, we talked about like workers working less, but what are the different ways that you've seen? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we've been able to do in our, our recent research is try to quantify the ways that the climate already has really important uh influence over society today. And so the reason this this even happens is because we're not very good at adapting. So for example, we find that today in the US, our corn yields could be increased by almost 50% if we could fully adapt to our current climate, forget about future climate change. And that's a really big number because we are sort of on the frontier of agricultural productivity around the entire world. And we're still seeing that we could do so much better uh, if we could fully adapt to our climate. But there are many other examples. Our human health is really affected by the climate. So we estimate that in the U.S., our mortality rate could be 11% lower if we could fully adapt to the climate. This is before that additional uh, impact of climate change. Energy use could be something like 30% lower if we had ways of fully uh, adapting to the climate. So, of course, it's really important to think about what's going to happen as the climate uh, gets even warmer, but it's it's important to note that we're very uh, we're, we're struggling to adapt to our current climate today. Wow, huh? So like, so it's we're dying sooner because of it, like individually, not just like in a natural disaster, but like individually. Yeah, absolutely. So hot days are are really dangerous, particularly for infants and for the elderly. So you know, if you're in a middle age category, you're pretty safe. But we really see once days get above about ninety degrees. Um, we see much higher death rates uh, for the elderly and, and for infants. Mm-hmm. Of course, having access to air conditioning is really valuable for, for protection. But even today, we do see uh, in the U.S., but particularly in poorer countries. So in places like India, for example, we lose many, many lives uh, on hot days, and those hot days are, are only increasing. Wow. And I was very intrigued by climate affecting how people interact with each other so like how friendly a salesperson is likely to be to you or like how like how likely you are to like I'm I'm making up these examples but how likely you are to like give a homeless person change or like whatever like it affect it makes people grumpier and less nice to each other yeah I think this falls in the in the bucket of we all can relate to it but finally we've gotten the data to actually quantify that this is true so people are much more aggressive when it's hot out and there's a lot of uh, neurological research trying to understand that mechanism but we see it in the U.S. and in many parts of, of the world that crimes go up so we see uh, assaults go up homicides uh, property crimes wow. are all rising as the temperature rises so we really see our social fabric kind of fractured in that interpersonal way. But we also see it at a very large scale. So civil conflict in sub-Saharan Africa is substantially influenced by the climate. 
we estimate that civil conflict throughout sub-Saharan Africa could be something like 30% lower if we could fully adapt to these temperatures that we're experiencing that we're currently not able to. Um, so those are those are a couple examples, but you know, some fun study, one of my colleagues recently published a paper using Twitter data and shows the way that we interact on Twitter completely changes when it gets hot out. So <laughs> first of all, we spell things wrong all the time on Twitter when it's hot out. That's one example, but we're also much, yeah, yeah. So people, people misspell, that's sort of a, a cognitive failure, but then we also see people are just more aggressive. They display less positive sentiment. So just sort of angrier, more frustrated, a lot more curse words on Twitter. There's a lot of frustration that is expressed. And, and now that we have access to social media data, we can see it in really, uh, really interesting ways, as well as traditionally in sort of crime rates and, and conflict rates. Wow, that's crazy. So how does that affect uh, like things economically? So in two, we can think about it in two different ways. Some of the the stresses on social fabric can then lead to economic challenges. So we know from a huge amount of work that civil conflict makes it incredibly hard to escape poverty. So places in sub-Saharan Africa that have really been experiencing conflicts year over year, it's really hard to build up the foundations for successful economic growth. Oh. But on the other hand, so that that's one link. But on the other hand, you also see that when there's economic damage, that can lead to some of these social fabrics unraveling. So some of my work in India has looked at mental health. And I see that when crops are damaged by uh, by a changing climate, we really see people suffering uh, in terms of their mental health and their proclivity to commit suicide. Wow. And so it goes it's sort of on both sides of this uh, relationship where the economy influences these ways we interact with each other. And then again, the way we interact with each other then affects the, the economy. Wow. So, so what is this data mean for the future? Like, what are some things we should be most afraid of? Um, and what should we be focusing our energy on? I think a lot of the work now helping us understand what these impacts are. Yes, there are things to be afraid of, but they also open the doors for us to understand what to do about it and how, how we can adapt. So, of course, agriculture is one where we really know uh, the damages are likely to be large. But we also see evidence that things like access to irrigation can really help us mitigate those hot days. So, the more the research sort of develops, it seems the more we can understand uh, and how we can begin to adapt. Um, but yeah, some of the really big ticket items are the human health ones. You know, if you think about all of the people around the world, particularly in poor countries that are really exposed to these very hot temperatures that are only getting higher, those human health effects are likely to be very substantial. And getting access to air conditioning, to, to human health services that can support those individuals, I think will be really, really important uh, going forward. And then yeah, I think that the civil conflict results are, are really troubling. As we look out at foreign affairs today, I think many of us are concerned about uh, sort of the state of, uh, of conflict and foreign policy around the world. And, and we have a lot of evidence that civil wars and riots and coups all increase as the temperature rises. And I think being aware of those security threats, um, which I know the U.S. military is very aware of, um, is going to be really important going forward. Yeah, I've never thought about it uh, this way. Like, I've never thought about the effects of climate change that aren't just like, you know, and then there's a natural disaster or something. Yeah, we haven't talked too much about hurricanes. There, there are a lot of these really salient effects, and hurricanes and sea level rise are really, really important. 39% of the U.S. population is touching the coast, and 28% of our property by value is touching the coast. So a lot of these things are really saliently affected by the climate. And a lot of the things, particularly the way that temperature influences society, I think it's a lot harder to pull apart. Yeah. So obviously you're not a policymaker, but if you could talk to them and say what changes 
you think should be made, what do you think would be the most effective? I think that the um, over the last five to 10 years, it really has transitioned where um, both policymakers and private companies are beginning to see this as an economic issue. One really great example is the insurance industry. You know, the insurance industry is very much affected by both sea level rise and hurricane damages, as well as all these other economic impacts that are coming from a changing climate. And I think the tide is really turning in terms of people's awareness of these economic implications. And, um, and, I, and I hope that that continues. And, and of course, you know, we'd love to have these sort of um, big, large-scale uh, policies like a carbon tax where we really try to correct for the effect of greenhouse gases around the world. Climate change can feel really big and really far away and, and, and very difficult to wrap your head around. And, and I hope that a lot of this work helps us see how in our, in our own daily lives and in the news that we're reading, there are a lot of different aspects of the way that we live and interact with each other that are affected by the climate and therefore are likely to change as we see greenhouse gases continue to rise and the temperature continue to rise. So guys, this is it. The end of this episode. I'm not going to lie to you. We're not going to get rid of climate change. It's already happening. And it's already set a lot of things in motion. And I'm not going to tell you to stop driving or to use different light bulbs. I mean, you should. But at this point, small individual actions will only help slow climate change in tiny ways. That doesn't mean it isn't worth doing. But think about it. Florida is a state where our offensive leader spends most of his days in a resort, which he owns and has interest in keeping running. And not even that can get him to acknowledge that climate change is a thing we've caused. So like many things this season, we're going to have to focus on the local and the regional. And for that, there's something good happening in Florida. I know, can you believe it? Back in 2010, a handful of counties in Florida created a compact, specifically the Southeast Florida Regional Climate Change Compact, in which they held themselves accountable to mitigate climate change. As a result, they focused resources and research on areas prone to flooding and places most vulnerable to the changing climate. They haven't stopped it from happening, but here's hoping that when it gets worse, they'll be prepared. Maybe make sure your town has something similar, or at least don't go buying real estate on the coast. And as Tama mentioned, this focus on what you can do where you are is important because the policy isn't necessarily the same for the whole country. In a political climate where we may not necessarily expect change to be happening at a federal level, what we can do is see with the newly available research that we have how individual local level changes are happening. And so that means that local policymakers like mayors or private business owners or even individuals can see how the climate's likely to affect where they work and where they live and hopefully um, build up some more awareness and, and um, momentum for change through understanding how climate's affecting their local economies and societies. And Caroline had this crazy idea. I'm not into conspiracy theories. Oh, I am. But Keep going. <laughs> there, <laughs> there is, there seems to be this deliberate attempt to keep the masses ignorant about the reality of this crisis. Yep. So everybody that I speak to, I ask them if they would run for office because I think we have to get more people who get it to consider public service. I mean, an elected leader is a public servant, right? And if you're a public servant elected by the people, I think you need to act in the best interest of the people. And if the science is so clear and the economic distress is so clear, how can we not act in the 
best interest of our public. And that's where I'm hoping this goes. So will you run for office? Oh, Debbie? God. I, you know what I would say? I have too many skeletons in my closet, but apparently that doesn't matter anymore. So it's just a apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, I'm not running for president. Although, wouldn't this be a cool way for me to announce it? Look, it can't be worse than Kanye's method, okay? But maybe you should think about it. Or at least maybe you should think about running for local office. If no one on the ticket is thinking about how devastating climate change is going to be for your city or county, maybe you need to be the one to bring it up with your platform. You have to think about your legacy and what will your legacy be. So the fact that some people say I can't do anything really upsets me because this is the fight of our lives. Thanks for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes and be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money that this is the show for them. Also tell your friends who think climate change can't be real because it was so cold this spring. Guys, we're part of the Panoply Network. Our producers are Lindsay Cradwell and Sam Dingman and we're edited by Chiquita Pascal. Thanks also to Cameron Drews. Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Original music for our show is composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera and our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. I'm Gabby Dunn, and I'll see you hopefully next week.